0: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Wastwater podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Olivier Narbet as my guest. Olivier's curse is to be one of my colleagues at GF Piping Systems, which prevented me to open him the microphone for a while, as I didn't want you to think that this full podcast series was hidden advertising. And indeed, it's a pity I've waited that long because I know few water professionals with as much experience and incredible stories as Olivier. He'll explain in a minute how having worked for the three French majors and in fascinating countries like Algeria, Azerbaijan, Armenia or Mozambique gave him a unique view on our industry and you'll see that we dedicate our deep dive today to one of the hottest topics there is in the water sector, non-revenue water, the size of the challenge and how to address it. But you know what, I'm not going to spoil too much of it, I'll just reveal that I said something that pissed Olivier, which led him to deliver one of the most passionate and engaging explanations of a topic we ever had on that microphone. So last stop before we take off, please take a minute to share this episode with a colleague or a friend, that is the highest reward and sign of support you can give me, so thank you in advance, please do it and I'll see you on the other side.
1: for more information, visit gfps.com.
0: Hi, Olivier. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm very happy because it's not every day that I have another French guy on the microphone. So I'm not going to make my special postcard of where we are, because again, we're in the same room, so I know where you are. But you come from a very specific place of France, specific to me because it's the other end of France compared to where I live. So can you send me a, an interesting postcard from Nantes?
2: Oh, okay. Um, well, that's where I live with with my family. North is a very interesting city, very lively, full of culture, full of young people, students, uh, but it's also a city with a history. It was once the capital of Brittany. So, you know, please consider North part of Brittany in, in France. It's uh, not administratively the case, but it is part of Brittany. So it's a city that is going through a lot of, you know, changes, reconstruction, it was uh, greatly destroyed during World War II, you know, bombed. And now it's trying to find a new pace, transforming industrial areas where, which are very close or into the city center, into you know, new urban areas, new type of uh, infrastructure. So that's quite interesting to see evolving, I would say. It has the proximity to the sea as well, to the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. So it gets very popular in the, in the summer.
0: But you don't have the Rhine River, so still I win. <laughs> yeah, the, the Rhine River it doesn't flow that We have the Loire River, but it's nowhere as nice as the Rhine, I have to say. <laughs> well, talking of French references, you've been working for the three French majors when it comes to water treatment. Does that make you a pure product of the French water school? I, I saw you reacting to treatment because water in general, not treatment. Uh,
2: Well, yeah, um, I I graduated as an uh, hydraulic engineer, uh, art hydraulic and environment uh, engineer from Strasbourg quite some time ago, more than 20 years ago. And I worked for the three major companies, so uh, Veolia and Suez. It's there, all different companies. I'm not so sure I'm a pure product of that uh, industry, French industry, because I spent most of my career abroad. So I think... I certainly lo- learned a lot in each of those companies, but I also was exposed to very different things
0: and different setup in different countries. That is actually very interesting because usually you're French, you graduate from a French school in the country where you have all the water majors. It's not every day that you see people that have such an international exposure that like like you had, and in places which are, I don't want to sound strange with that word, but which are not the the, the conventional places. So how did you? end up in which country did you work and how did you end up in those countries?
2: Yeah, the reason I work in the water industry, being very transparent and, uh, you know, almost na- naive, is, is I wanted a, a job that gave me opportunity to travel and opportunity to discover different things. So, you know, when, when it was time to pick a career, I just looked at, you know, what what are the French major company doing? I saw a big strength in the water industry with those companies. And I said, okay, let's try to work in that industry and be exposed to this uh, in, uh, international activities. And, you know, so that was kind of a key criteria. And I would think a lot of people who have worked uh, in the French water industry are now working on an uh, international level, or have been exposed to international uh, jobs.
0: International, yes, but... Australia, the US, the UK, maybe more naturally than the places where you were.
2: Yeah, well, I I spent quite a big part of my time, of international time, in in Africa. I worked uh, almost ten years uh, in uh, in Algeria, several years in Mozambique, in Gabon, and those were kind of the long uh, assignments that that I had. And I wasn't, you know, really when I. You know, mentioned my early career plan. I wasn't really thinking of Africa, to be honest. I was more looking towards Brazil, uh, you know, exotic places in in a different way, probably. But I think I, I ended up finding in those countries some, uh, you know, very nice ingredients of uh, work, life balance, uh, interesting jobs, great people, uh, motivating people, commitment to what you're doing. And yeah, I wouldn't be too emphatic, but... Um, uh, yeah, some sort of meaning in what in in what you do. So you make career choices kind of by default at the beginning, and then you open up your perspective and you you pick things in in a different way. But uh, you know your first attempts at a career, they're really okay. Let's try this. Let's try Mozambique, for instance. Yeah. Would
0: you say that the time you've spent in Africa dealing with water topics was? by any means from another planet another world compared at what you you saw and and lived in europe or is it not as exotic as it sounds i think it's um one thing about africa it it's at the same time
2: very different and it has this level of uh, complexity but at this uh, on the other end very transparent and um you know when you're faced with let's talk about you know jobs and issues in 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 the workplace when you see things happening in in the workplace or on projects you know it's like looking at the same problems from a european perspective but with a looking glass you know so you can actually see much clearer issues situation because people are more genuine i think more transparent and you you know what is at stake is more obvious to you so it's much less complex to understand what is happening and you do get a lot of key learnings out of that and you have also more impact because you can act directly on those simple things
0: it's interesting because usually you know and me the first I said you were working in Africa we speak about Africa like it's one thing and that's something I've been discussing on that microphone with uh, with Walid Khoury how even the countries still don't reflect exactly what is happening in Africa so uh, you have a lot more to look at and when you look at the, the water related topic, if you look at water basins or things like that, it's again another level of complexity. And somewhat, it's the unscratched part of the word, at least from a Western country perspective. Did you share that? Uh, yeah, the it's difficult to compare one country to another.
2: You know, even looking at North Africa, comparing Algeria and Morocco, they're very different countries, very different culture. Yes, they do share... Part of the of the language or some dialects at least, but the the culture is is different. people are different, and it's i mean it it goes back I don't know how long you know, and it's also part of the recent is history. there are very different cultures and, and and countries, so you know when you I've spent talking about Algeria, spent nine, ten years there. I learned a few things some things were very obvious in the beginning you know how to behave with people and you know how you can work together in in such an a, I would say a different environment but it was also a very transparent and very friendly environment I had a couple of experience a short short assignments in Morocco and things were simpler but only on the surface, things are actually much more complex for me in Morocco to understand. I'm not saying one is better than the other. Uh, I just think, you know, each, each country has its own ways and you need to understand, depending what you're here for, you know, if you're short-term, long-term, what type of projects you're working on.
0: We've mentioned that you, you worked in, in Africa and in various countries in Africa, but we didn't say what you did there. So what was your, your duty? So,
2: yeah, as I said, I'm originally a, a water engineer. I mean, my first job over there, we're kind of uh, working on, um, let's say, water supply projects most of the time and of different configurations, uh, very often funded by international donors or uh, funding uh, like uh, World Bank or I think now they call the International Development Bank. So it was about really managing a, a water utility, a water company to upgrade, increase the level of service. And you know, in some countries you start with a level of service that is two, three, four hours of water supply every other day, and you need to bring that up to a constant water supply or at least a daily water supply uh, during the day. So I mean the the key challenge that is been asked from international players coming into countries like that is okay. You need to deliver a better service. You need to make that service uh, sustainable from an economic perspective. And you know part of that, you have to create new infrastructure. You have to train the people. You have to involve them to make them autonomous from any international uh, support. So it becomes quite a complex equation to solve. Uh, and generally, those are very long-term projects. Highly rewarding, but highly challenging as well.
0: And after that decade in in Algeria, you went back to Europe and you did that that turn to move to the industry. What brought you to the manufacturing industry?
2: Just going back one sec for around Algeria, that was
0: highly rewarding, highly
2: satisfying project. Very interesting. A lot of things were done and achieved. With the team, with the people, I mean, from many aspects, from the infrastructure perspective, from the training of the people, the, you know, how we could uh, really collaborate with the, the Algerian team and, and and support them in developing skills and uh, organization. So that was, you know, great and quite unique from that perspective when i came back to europe and to france i was in the more i would say operational job and very uh, calibrated job into uh, customer services within uh, within Suez. and that didn't quite have the same taste as you know uh, working on such big projects like the water supply of uh, algiers and that yeah didn't feel the same i didn't have the same alignment of uh, motivations and uh, so yeah I, I was kind of starting to think of a new challenge, of different things. And then I got approached by GF, out uh, completely out of nowhere, I, I have to say, to work for a manufacturer of uh, piping systems, so GF piping systems. At the time was called a uh, Market Segment Manager, which is a really strategic role to develop the, the business of, of GF piping systems into water distribution systems.
0: And that led to your position today, which is? Yes, today I
2: I am a business developer within George Fisher Piping System, focusing on uh, water network performance. So basically, how do we work with our clients to have better tools and more efficiency? Uh, one of the key criteria being the non-revenue water or the water losses on the system, but This is also linked to water quality. This is also linked to constancy of supply. A lot of the countries where uh, we are operating, people don't have constant water supply. They have to do with 10 hours of water supply per day, 12 hours, sometimes less than that. And we, you know, we have ways to optimize this. We have ways to improve that still linked to non-revenue water, but that's, I think, uh, a First, not to to crack the constancy of supply.
0: Well, we'll come back to that, I guess, in the discussion. But generally speaking on non-revenue water, which is going to be our deep dive for today, I was discussing on that microphone with uh, David Lloyd-Owen, and he wrote in his Global Water Funding book, he was looking at various studies which are evaluating worldwide this uh, weight of non-revenue water, and he was aggregating the data, and I think he he put together that, that that number of the 125 billion cubic meters per year, which are just leaked in various systems that we have in the world. But he is making a distinction there between the leaks, which are endemic, because you're never going to have 100% efficiency, and the low-hanging fruit, which you can quite simply... And I'm using brackets here. I mean, quite simply solve. And he was saying, if you just address the part which we can solve by various means, that's about $37 billion per year in savings. And all these thesis in the book is that global water funding, there's three ways to fund the close the gap. The first is to get more money, which is not happening. The second is to increase the water tariff, which is not happening. And the third is to reduce how much it costs to operate a water system. And is saying those 37 billions you could save with cutting the non-revenue water are the low-hanging fruit. This sounds like a very nice explanation.
2: I really don't know where to start because you just gave a (laughs) bunch of uh, interesting things and some are very debatable. Um, Which ones? um, Okay, let's start with what we we can agree on with those statements. First... There are huge amount of water that are lost every year. And those numbers, they're quite accurate, I think. I think the, the latest I had in mind was 126 trillion cubic meter of water lost per year. So I think that's quite close to what you were saying. And yes, that is worth a lot of money. And how you characterize that amount, it really depends. Some countries, you know, when they have water scarcity... They're not trying to fix leaks. They don't have time to fix leak uh, for some reason. They just go for new infrastructure. And for, I think over the past 30, 40 years, this is what you see most of the time that especially large municipalities, they go for more water resources and as long as they have the, the cash to pay for those extra infrastructure, So a desalination plant, a new plant, a new dam, uh, reservoirs, and, and then you 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 increase that. So... You know, what is at stake in terms of money is financing is, is actually, I think, much more than 40 billions. It's uh, it's absolutely huge because you can actually waste, well, it's not exactly waste, but you have to commit to huge investment to satisfy the constancy of supply. Plus, add the urbanization wave that is going on in the large municipalities, add climate change on top of that, the water resources that you're having today, like Coastal aquifers, you know, they get damaged by the rise of uh, salinity and you can't use them anymore. So, you know, all of a sudden from, uh, you know, over the course of 10 years, you just lose 20, 30% of your water resources. You know, take the city of, uh, of Algiers, for instance. There's a saline intrusion, partly due to overuse of the aquifer, but also linked to climate change. And, you know, basically you're just going to destroy portable Uh, water resource uh, out of that. So the economic
0: impact is absolutely huge. There's much more than just the water, there's all the surroundings which you have to factor in.
2: Yeah, and you think that you're for water, you're in competition with agriculture. And, you know, if you have a growth of population, yes, they need water, but they also need activities, food, industry. So this all goes together. So, you know, I would... I would first position, you know, water infrastructure. Uh, We could have the same discussion around sewage and sewage treatment, obviously, but it's not a choice of, uh, let's, should we finance it? Should we not finance it? I mean, we should all in everywhere, we should all have a big in depth look at, you know, what's going to happen with water resources and, you know, what should be the plan for the next 30 years. Because over all the changes we've had because of migration, because of climate change, And, you know, just pretending out of the blue that we can have a low-hanging fruit with leakage, I think it's a bit uh, outdated.
0: Well, I'm not making a service to David Lloyd Owen by citing him that way, probably, because he's also saying a bit what you're saying here, which is that there's this SDG6, which was supposed to happen towards 2030. And what he's saying is that at best, by 2030, what we will have is maybe a plan, meaning that we still don't do it, but at least we have a plan. So he's also saying what you say, which is, let's first start by by having a plan. But when you say, should, what I hear in between the lines is that it's still not happening. Well,
2: no, I mean, of course, there's a financial equation to this, it's not easy. And okay, yes, you can always, on coastal region, you can always go for desalination plant, but we all know they're quite expensive to build and to run. And yes, there have been some dramatic improvements in efficiency and cost, but those are still very costly uh, infrastructure to run. And I would say they're also short-lived compared to other type of infrastructure. If you can operate an aquifer, sorry, it sounds a bit weird, but uh, uh, in a sustainable way, this is something you you will have for you know decades, uh, generations to go. So.
0: so what you're saying is that it's not only non-revenue water, the, the name is a bit misleading, it's... Uh also water you wouldn't have to produce if you had higher efficiency. Exactly. I mean,
2: okay, Uh, I think Algeria is a good example of of the stress the big cities are under. Ten years ago, or a bit more, yeah, twelve years ago, they decided to go for additional desalination capacity, which they did, which greatly helped them to improve the the quality of the service. And I think desalination plant in in Algeria, they're I think one of the top ecosystem of desalination in the world, after Saudi maybe. They are operating this quite successfully, but at the same time they feel the climate change impact quite harshly on the reservoir, on the water reservoirs. I mean, this year is absolutely catastrophic for them. They didn't have the rainy season in, during the spring and they are no... Working with reservoirs and dams that are, you know, lower than 20% of their capacity, and they have to restrict water supply to most part of the country or almost. So it's very, very challenging time. But I would say in a normal year, the desalination capacity should be that, you know, extra bit that you need from time to time to run the water supply system. But, you know, at at the moment, they are the main source of supply for some of the cities in Nigeria. They have to rely almost 60% on desalination plant for the water supply, which is absolutely something. I cannot say it was unpredictable because, you know, there's always someone out there that said, okay, the the impact of uh, climate change in North Africa or the Mediterranean region is going to be such and such. But it was hard to believe for people 12 years ago that that would be the case. They were only seeing desalination as a nice, not nice, but a necessary add-on to the complement to the production. No, it's completely changed, and this has quite a big impact. Just to go back on the one thing I disagree, I mean, the most shocking word in what you said, and you know, having worked with people in water operation and water supply, is this low-hanging fruit concept. I know you did that to provoke me, I'm sure. It worked. <laughs> yeah, it did, it did, badly. Yeah. Um, I worked on contracts and projects, so let's let's leave North Africa for a while and, and go to uh, other projects. I, I was working in uh, in Armenia. Okay, it's middle of the it's in between Caucasus and and Turkey. It's stuck between Turkey, Iran, Georgia, Azerbaijan, as we've heard over the, you know in the past uh, year. The network, the water losses in their system uh, for the city of Yerevan. Uh, was at the time around 85 percent water losses. Did people complain about water supply? Not really, because they have plenty of water over there. You know, it's next to the Caucasus, so so they, they have fantastic water, for, you know, potable water resources. You know, without any drink treatment, no 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 chemicals, no, nothing. But still, their efficiency was was just uh, network efficiency was just um, terrible. So, you know, we arrived there, yeah, super easy to improve a ratio of uh, 15%, efficiency of 18%, 15%, sorry. So we're going to be, you know, in six months, we're just going to crush everything and improve this situation. by you know, we climb up to 40%, 50% easily in six months. The reality is that the people who were operating the system, they were not total idiots. They actually, they were doing their best and trying their best and achieved quite a few things already. So, you know, their starting point was not 15%. It was even lower than that. And it's not easy to improve a a water system. There are, you know, many things you need to understand and consider. And I think the the key thing you see in systems that are poor performance is the limited knowledge people have of that system and there can be many reasons to that. Uh, I would say wars have a terrible impact you know when an infrastructure was built and you know a war happened I don't know who I don't care who, who won who lost but uh, you know when the engineers leave the country or the city with the drawings of the of the water system, it doesn't make life easy for the for the people uh, working after that. So they have to be some kind of pipe archaeologist to dig that out and, and to improve things. The condition of the system itself, you know, when the system was just designed in a way that it would basically corrode in 15 or 20 years, like it was the case in Armenia, it was all a system full of steel pipe, unprotected steel pipe. So, you know, system was leaking, and I would think almost every, at every weld or joint, and, you know, no no pipe was really uh, watertight, you know, no, nothing was watertight. So, yeah, you have thousands and thousands of kilometers uh, of pipe that are leaking. So, okay, the only solution is to replace the pipe. Uh, and you can also play with different things, but uh, it, and it's quite challenging. It's a huge amount of money that you need and you need to dig out the pipes. And when you start playing with excavators all around the city of one million inhabitants, in the case of Yerevan... You do get a few issues with the municipality, with the police, with traffic control and things. So, yeah, it's, yeah, low hanging fruit that really doesn't resonate with my experience. And I, I think it's not, it doesn't give an accurate picture of the people working in water supply in general, whether there are international firms, local or anything. Nevertheless, there are things that can be done. I mean, with experience and background, and I mean, there are a few mistakes that can be avoided, and there are things that bring faster results than others. But yeah, just to make things clear, it comes at a very with a very high level of commitment and hard work, and it's there's no such thing as as, as low hanging fruit. Some things are a bit easier than others and more obvious with experience, I would say, but no low hanging
0: fruit. Okay, so let, let me withdraw the long hanging fruit. Sorry for that one. But just, you know, when you tell me the network had an efficiency of 15%, it sounds like pretty obvious that the solution is not to fix the leaks, but to replace the network, really from an outsider perspective. Do you see a tipping point in the efficiency of the network, starting where it would make sense to repair and improve, and below that tipping point, it would simply be better to build a new infrastructure?
2: Okay, I will answer your question, but there's something I want to mention first because Mm -hmm. that kind of a... Before thinking of, you know, renewing a, a water system, I mean, the first thing, you know, you learn, you should look at is, yeah, you know the old pipes that were replaced 10 years ago, 20 years ago, can we make sure they're out of service, you know? The history of a piping system is such that a lot of the issues come from the pipes that you think you were, you had disconnected. So everybody believes they are disconnected and not operating anymore. But somehow somewhere someone left a valve. Okay it was closed on the day of the decommissioning but he thought it was a good idea to keep that valve just in case you know you never know it gives you safety. And then you know For some reason, one day that valve was open and remained open. So you thought you had decommissioned 30 kilometers of leaking pipeline, but they're actually still in operation. Do
0: you speak by experience here? Yes, I do.
2: (laughs) Um, No, and, and that's the first thing you look at, you know, to decommission old pipe. And it's quite a good strategy because, you know, as long as you have drinking water available or potable water available, and if you have a lack of water supply somewhere, okay, when you know you had the pipes, you would just build a new pipe to that area, and so you had five pipes supplying the same area. And at some point in time, you think, okay, I don't really need that hydraulic capacity. Maybe I should decommission one of those pipes to just just to see what what happens. And yeah, most of the time, it comes into an improvement. But the other thing, you know, just to give you some funny funny things and funny ideas, is. Uh, you worked in in Nordic countries, and you know, okay, frost is a problem, and freezing is an issue. So you have to bury the pipe quite deep and protect them, or protect them, or both, uh, just to avoid the pipe freezing. Especially when it goes into low flow condition, you know, no no dynamic movement. So, okay. when you have a very rocky soil like uh, the Caucasus, for instance. Uh, It's it's a lot of hard work to bury the pipe very deep, you know, because you have to excavate rocks, you know, basalt, very hard rocks. So, yeah, it's too much effort to bury the pipe deep. So, okay, you bury them at the depth you can, mm, somewhere between, yeah, 50 centimeter, one meter. But, you know, in this part of the world, you know, freezing conditions are very, very harsh between November and, and April. So, yeah, you get frozen pipe very often. No I never had a frozen pipe in the water supply system of of Yerevan. I can't remember of any. You know why? Because we always left the washout open, so water was always flowing. (laughs) So the key thing was, you know... There are welcome side effects to the non-revenue water. (laughs) (laughs) In this case, yes. But, I mean, how you handle the washout, how you handle your system, you you need to understand how things are run. You know, what is worst, to have a completely frozen piping system where you're going to destroy the supply and won't be able to get back to it in 6 months or do you open the washouts and and lose water
0: you know that's a it's a strategy if i get you right the very first foundation block is to have a better understanding and a better knowledge about your network that is really the thing that you need
2: yes i mean it, and every you know every serious water engineer would, would would go in that direction the you know you have a limited budget for anything you do you have a very limited budget compared to what is at stake you know, we're talking about all this infrastructure and you're only playing with, uh, you know, little millions here and there. And you need to know where to focus your, your effort. So, and yeah, the, the first thing you should invest into, you know, is a proper mapping of, of your network, better knowledge, as much as information as you can gather, uh, just to, to see a clear and full picture. Uh, when I was working in, in, in projects where I didn't have that, it took me, you know, two years, three years to get there. And that was quite painful. And you know, when you're done with that, you know, you're kind of completely exhausted, but you you think you've achieved nothing. But believe me, I've been in this other situation where I arrived on a job where this had been done and it was fantastic. I mean, when this is done properly, you can achieve so much more, but you, you should never forget about that phase. So, but for two or three years, you know, no low-hanging fruit, you know, no real quick wins or things. No, no, you're not, not talking about that. You're talking about establishing the base of a proper restructuring and operation of your water system. And you know, consulting jobs, consulting engineers are, are very important in that respect. And I wouldn't say they're neglected. They're very often part of, a, you know, international donor strategy. But uh, yeah, I think we we, all, we still underestimate the value of such uh, such jobs.
0: It's a topic we somehow covered uh, with uh, Elengo Tevar from Near. That was by season two, episode one, I think, where we were discussing how do you have a better patrimonial understanding of what's buried out there. And to go from this situation where you know you have things buried to a situation where you have a very, in that case, digital vision of what is laid at which place. So if you want to have a, a, a deeper dive to that matter. I recommend you that uh, that discussion I had. But let's assume for today that we have done that mapping. So we have that understanding. We've made that that two years investment into better understanding the network. And then I'm coming back to my question, now we have kind of a precise idea of the current efficiency of the network. When would you decide to do something and, and what would you decide depending on those results? You know, what you learn from that first
2: phase is okay there are different models that you you, you can use and one uh, I think the first thing is to look at asset management models where okay with different tools differently depending on the type pipe material depending on your you you estimate the remaining lifetime of a mm-hmm. piping system and you know you theoretically program your pipe renewal it's a very theoretical exercise because you never get the necessary budget to do it but still you're going to prioritize and organize things and i think it's uh, it's the first good use you can make of your initial uh, consulting job on the thing, and then it gives you a prioritization with different criteria of you know what you should be doing but you know think this is only a limited budget that you have you know i mean i think you you've been confronted with that as well that you yeah you have budget to renew point 2 to 05 percent of your network every year yeah some countries do better than that because they get extra funding at some point, but this is more or less what water services can afford in most parts of the world. So, you know, it means a, a lifetime, theoretical lifetime of 200 years average for, for your system. So way too long for any, any pipe material, any piping system. So you have to be smart, okay, on the, your asset management renewal and, you know, just pick the right places and, and, you know, just spend the money where you need to spend the money. So... Once you've done that, you haven't fixed all of the issues. You've fixed, yeah, let's say, 25% of your problems uh, and issues. And then you are faced, yeah, from yeah, whatever a result of past installation. No, could be a bite soil condition, could be bad installation, could be too much pressure because the system was initially designed for a different pressure from a different water source and you didn't manage that. So, yeah, you, you need to understand, okay, what is the constraint and the pressure on my system, uh, and can I manage it a, a little bit better? And that is when you start to think of tools like pressure management, for instance, and you're going to organize your system in such a way that you're going to pressurize your system just enough, not not too low, not too high, but just enough to be able to supply everyone in decent conditions throughout the day. So especially you try to minimize pressure at night and increase pressure during the day, but just at the right level. And this is, I mean, quite challenging because it requires your system to be built in what we call in a district metered area. I mean, you don't necessarily have to build a meter, but if you place a a pressure regulation equipment, you generally put a meter next to it. And you need to sometimes redesign your system depending on elevation, depending on the mapping that you have to make that, uh, you know, Let's say more logical operation of the system from a from a pressure uh, point of view, and that is you know, let's say more designing job, uh, design engineering, and let's say that it's another twenty five percent of your of your strategy and things you can do. The other part uh, I would say is really linked to um, some issues that happen, and you know you can talk about pipe burst and leaks, and you need to manage that because sometimes. Uh, you know, a pipe burst is not really the result of an aging pipeline. It's just, you know, one localized uh, situation where for some reason the joint was uh, damaged. And, you know, if you fix that, your line is good. You know, if you fix that one or it was damaged by external. And this, you need to keep an eye on on all, all those things and you need to monitor your situation. And that's really an operational job and to have DMAs in place and monitoring of flows and pressure in the system really... DMAs? Or oh, district metered areas. Yeah, sorry, we mentioned district meters, so DMA, district meter area, or DMZ, DM, district meter zone. DMA became more common, I think. Yeah, and you use this, uh, let's say, theoretical model of your system, where, okay, DMA1 should have so many cubic meters of water with a night flow of 10 or 5 and when you see uh, start to see a discrepancy in those value you say oh night flow became 20 i must have an issue there so i have a response team you know doing my leakage detection and another response team going for the leak repair and this part of uh, of operation is important the common mistake but it's becoming less true uh, uh, is to think this is the only thing you have to do i mean this is the main thing you have to do do a bit of pipe renewal but then focus on leak detection and repair I think that's a very incomplete strategy. Why so? Well, because you never know when a leak appears if it's the result of a punctual problem, you know, or the result of an aging piping system or, uh, you know, extra excessive pressure on that system. So if you focus solely on, you know, corrective maintenance and you sometimes never eliminate the cause of the problem, that could be simply, I'd say, with brackets, excessive pressure on, on your system so you always need to you know kind of manage a good asset management plan pressure management and i would say even design of the the dmas and design of the of the different pressure zone in your system with a good maintenance strategy the weight of the actions and the importance varies depends you know you know a water system is generally a sum of hundreds of water systems so some part of a st- the same city are going to be very advanced when it comes to pressure management or very with a very, let's say, fresh uh, piping system, very new. So they don't have the same priorities and the same issues. So, I mean, on any scale, you need to manage those skills of operations, asset management,
0: and uh, let's say, network design and pressure management. So what you're saying is that all of these steps really don't work in isolation. I mean, you need to do your homework and to map everything because that is going to feed into your DMA, that you have yeah. a good understanding of what does what, then you have to regulate your pressure, you have to go to look for the leaks. And on the same hands, you have also to have still your brain on to say, hey, I see regularly something happening in that district, then very probably I have a bigger issue and I need to sort that out. But if you have only one piece, you're a bit left out of information. You cannot just have a holistic approach.
2: Yeah, I think you need to experiment uh, all approaches and, you know, test them on on your system because you, you despite this initial consulting job that you mentioned, you're trying to understand and map out their system, you never know, know 100% of the information. So, you know, to continue this kind of project, whether there are leak detection or pressure management, helps you fine-tune your knowledge of your system, whether you know more about the condition of the pipe, like, "Oh, I repaired that 60-year-old Ductile ion pipe." You should have a look at it. It's completely corroded. Oh, that's an indication of what we don't know yet, but it's an indication could be. Normal aging of the pipe in a corrosive soil could be some localized electrical influence from uh, whatever tramway line or anything. So you know could be many things. But you need to look at whenever you have the chance to physically touch and see your your piping system. You need to uh, capitalize that information into your mapping system, uh, GIS (Geographical Information System). GIS is much broader. Uh, sorry, and you know and continue to learn on your system and you know fine tune your skills when it comes to to water loss management and uh, asset management.
0: So water network management is a bit of four and six. You get the body regularly and you have to inspect that body to understand what probably happens around that piece of... Yeah, that's a good metaphor. And to to be fair with you, uh, at
2: some point in some jobs, I was seeing, you remember that TV show House MD?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, <laughs> I,
2: I, I, I was very, you know, pretentious. But I, I, I sometimes I saw myself as this guy, you know, like try looking at a piping system and, you know, sniffing what was happening, you know, and just throwing away, you know, some diagnostics and uh, people listening to me and just going out for and eating for, some <laughs> pills as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, just going a bit, a bit being a bit more down to earth. Yes, it does involve probing and testing and. Uh, trying to see what what happens. I mean, there are some general solutions like, okay, let's renew that part of the system. Let's not waste our time into leak detection. I think this this is all whatever, asbestos cement system from the 60s, 70s, and uh, we have other reason to renew that, so let's do this. But even doing that requires knowledge. Okay, where are the pipes? You know, where am I going to disconnect them? How many water connections do I need to renew? What do I need to do? And it requires a lot of uh, investigation and uh, and you know, fine knowledge of, of your system. Again, if you're not hundred percent sharp on you know what you're going to do in the construction work and your ro- renewal work, you may leave out a connection somewhere, a piece of pipe crossing between two networks, and then you're completely wasted all of your effort so it's a very difficult job to be done properly what was that what you said low hanging fruit yeah
0: <laughs> so i get that it's only one brick in the wall, but can we uncover that brick of pressure regulation how do you regulate the pressure on the network you, you explain the rationale of, of why we shall do that but how do you actually do it there are two ways of, let's say
2: three ways you know, going back to the mapping and elevation, you can just position your storage system, your storage tank at the right elevation and design your piping system and you know, freeze time. Nothing is going to happen for the next 50 years, no extra construction, no extra water usage, and you design your piping system. Everything is frozen and pressure is perfect because you perfectly design your pipeline with the head loss in, in your piping system.
0: So that's the first way. So that's the keys of Vatican, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: well, that's an interesting one. Uh, I never worked there, but I heard of people who work there. But they do have a lot of issues with. Uh, uh, typically, piping system in Vatican is an absolute nightmare, <laughs> because they don't know where the piping systems are. You know, they have absolutely no clue. And can you picture an excavator <laughs> in the middle of Vatican City? You know, I mean, maybe they had a bit of time, uh, unfortunately, over the COVID crisis, but. It's just absolutely not possible to do anything. So, okay, I sidetrack you. Sorry. No, <laughs> yeah, no. But that's 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 a very interesting one. The very big challenge. I would say I would be really interested in knowing how they're going ta- they're going to tackle this one. So let's say this very first method, which is you know time frozen, you know perfect conditions. But uh, I guess what's not really what's happening in real life. Okay, I guess that's not a surprise. So. Okay, no, we have to deal with all sorts of events. So you've positioned a designer network and you have to deal with extra consumption, population changes, uh, extra usage, um, you know, many different things or, you know, change of resources, uh, you know, things happen over the lifetime of a water system. So then you you start, okay. I want to manage pressure on that system. So, you know, I cannot just use the storage tank elevation. I need to use devices to do that. So the one that I will first mention that I'm not going to cover in detail is using pumping stations. You know, a pump just creates artificial elevation and you can regulate that elevation with different devices. So a variable speed drive pump or, you know, simple pump or increased number of pumps can adapt the pressure on your piping system, and that's a, something that is commonly used to manage pressure on, on a distribution system. Still, it's uh, electricity-driven, it's a mechanical equipment, requires maintenance, variable speed drive. I mean, it's a very well-known technique, I mean, it's, 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 uh, and it works. Uh, you can see, see some operators, they don't really like it because they don't like the maintenance and cost and risk associated to it, even though it's perfectly controlled by the, by the manufacturers. So, you know, what we see that is more common in Europe, in the US, in many countries is pressure-regulating valve. And basically, it's a mechanical device, you know, that creates a flow constriction, which target is to reduce pressure or adjust pressure. So there are different functions, but let's focus on pressure-reducing, so downstream pressure regulation of the valve. And that device just makes you... Have a steady pressure, whatever the flow condition into your system so you you create kind of a fixed point of pressure in your system that you can control and adjust and with that pressure you can you know decide okay I will cover a dma a district meter area a part of my system, and by operating that device you uh, decide the scope and the limit of your of your dma so you, there's a bit of hydraulic calculation trial and error attached to it, but you you just break down the the pressure in your system. Then I mean that's just a simple single set point thing. You can adjust that pressure and pressure management as it's normally called. You can actually program that set point of pressure, depend and program it according to the demand, let's say. I mean you can program it according to time, but in the end what matters is the demand of water and Generally, you try to adjust the pressure higher during the day at peak hour because that's where there's more water demand and you have more uh, head loss on your system or pressure loss on your system. And you try to minimize it at night because that's where you have less pressure loss and the risk of having excessive pressure uh, on your system. So you, you you try to adjust that pressure set point. This is also true for pumping station, but this is uh, talking about valve now, to just Give what you need on, in terms of pressure on your water system to satisfy everyone and every usage of water. So simple in principle but as it's a mechanical device and with a bit of electronics if you try to program that set point um, yeah it's subject to failure maintenance and it has some limitations in, in, in flow depending on the usage, depending on the flow condition on the system, not you know Systems are all different, so you know how can a single design of mechanical uh, device can can cope with all those uh, different situations that's the I would say that's the trick that's the to that is to master
0: and what is the the state of the art today because that sounds you know if you you take a piping systems whatever the regardless of the material everything if you consider it's laid down properly and you can decide that it's going to run at that pressure then you, you take your, your curves and probably that one is going to last the 200 years that it's supposed to last as it has any ways to cover that. If you're replacing 0.5% of your network. So that sounds to me like, I'm not saying low hanging fruit. I'm going to say some that like the, the perfect solution to a complex problem, but with a caveat, which is what you just explained that it may be failing. It may be a bit more complex than on the paper. So what is, is it's like, commonplace today? Do you, do you go to your next plumbing shop and you buy a pressure-regulating valve? Is it really something obvious? Um, well,
2: pressure-regulating valve is what many people have at home before their, uh, or after their, their water meter. So a lot of pressure-regulating valves are installed in individual uh, houses and, or, or flats. Uh, so that's something that is quite common. So this is something that is being done and you know it's always part of a, of a design. When we talk about pressure regulating valve into distribution system, we're talking much uh, slightly bigger valves. Uh, sometimes very big valves, and uh, no, you don't find that to the next plumber. And when you have to, in, you think of installing such a device. You always evaluate costs or con- constraints and, and and benefits, and that's probably you know. You know, say you have a system, you know, you have a little bit of leakage here and there. Is it really important to work on pressure management today? And okay, yes, because I reduce my pressure, I will save a little bit on leakage. You know, if you have less pressure and existing leakage, you know, by reducing pressure, you will reduce your flow of leakage. That's you know obvious for hydraulic guys like us. But it's kind of a... Some, for some people, some organization is kind of a nice to have benefit to say, okay, I had leakage of ten before. No, I have a leakage of eight. Yes, it's an improvement, but do I really need to go through the discovery of a new type of device and uh, having something mechanical on my system that I have to maintain that I have to deal with? You know, is it really worth it? You know, for okay, yes, a decent result, but something that has it's more of a nice to have than anything. So we 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 will maybe get back to the nice to have in this current climate change and water scarcity topic. But uh, but yes, but you know, talking about the design life of a piping system, yes, it's been designed for hundred year. If you do a proper uh, polyethylene piping system with proper welding, with trained people, you can expect a lifetime of a hundred year, and you don't expose it to to uh, you know very excessive pressure for sure but who on earth can guarantee that system was installed 100% i'm saying 100% not point, uh, 99.9 but 100% by the book within a uh, soil that is you know 100% the right granulometry of sand and uh, tiny rocks and 100%, there won't be any earthquake happening, soil movement, ground movement, freezing conditions, you know, whatever can happen over the lifetime of, uh, of a, a piping system. You know, who can guarantee that that for the next 100 years, the condition will be such? No one, okay? So when you have a way to reduce one of the key parameters of stress on a piping system, which is pressure, and optimize that and say, okay, by adjusting my pressure and managing my pressure, yes, it's a new system. Yes, it has absolutely no problem today. You know, you are giving yourself a chance of increasing that theoretical lifetime from 100 to, well, let's say 200. I mean, who cares today? You know what I mean? But, you know, the, the reality is that 100-year lifetime system you might start to experience issues in 20 years, in 30 years. And if you can push that back in time, this is a very nice gift you give to the next generation. Not going to be your generation of people operating the system. Might not be even your sons, you know, it, uh, your, your children it might be the, the next generation. But if you actually manage properly pressure, you just control one of the key constraints. You know, what can you do about earthquake? I don't think much. What can you do about climate change? We think, we, we hope we can do something. But, you know, pressure is something you can do something about in design and, and, and at a very, you know, interesting cost
0: today. To round off our deep dive on the topic today, can you tell me what's the partnership you currently develop with uh, Oxford Flow in in that area of pressure reducing valve?
2: Yeah, I mean, to the point we were discussing earlier, the I mean, we're not changing the technology uh, with what we're doing today in GF piping systems with pressure management we have just come up with a design and an operation of pressure management that is much easier to grasp for water operators and that gives them much less headache gives them much more trust into their operation and system so we as GF piping systems you know we've been designing and making valve in uh, polymer material for decades. I mean, uh, I've only been working with this company three years, but uh, you know, if you look at the history and the experience of the company in designing valves, it, it's, it's huge. And uh, yeah, we very opportunistically we came across um, a UK-based startup called uh, Oxford Flow, and they had. Uh, I mean, they're they're a spinoff of Oxford University. Uh, I mean, they were working on a uh, jet engine, a famous. Uh, jet engine company in in, in the uk uh, you know operating for uh, airbus and uh, and boeing and uh, you know part of that development they developed regulating equipment regulating valve and one application one kind of sub application of that was a regulating valve for the water industry and they had just managed to to design a valve that is very simple mechanically very i mean i was very astonished when i when i came across that one and this has the same effect on most of the water professional I share it with, it's just beautifully simple. It's just a few components, an axial flow, and with a very low maintenance requirements. Made of polymer material, very light. So they had come up with this design, and you know we just realized the, the big potential this could have and the big problem solver. And I mean, let's say it was taking out some of the headache operators had which was a big hurdle for adoption of that technology and this is what we see today that people like how simple it is to use they have added benefit coming in in terms of pressure stability and uh, and regularity of the pressure management and uh, the full spectrum of pressure management and the flow and pressure but you know what they are really sold on today is how simple it is to manipulate install commission you know it's just like very intuitive mechanically and that's that's very interesting so we we, were, we invested in this uh, startup, uh, Oxford Flow. It's not a startup anymore, no. I mean, they are, they are also developing products in uh, other um, industries like oil and gas. So they're very creative, very innovative. And we, we have a global partnership with them uh, to supply the water distribution market, the municipal water market with these products.
0: So it sounds to me like you a bit closed the loop here because you, you didn't like my low-hanging fruit, but you're saying that you're now proposing a solution which is working on the acceptation Because it's a bit easier to work with, so maybe you're making all of that a low-hanging fruit.
2: I think the first thing for technology providers like us is to understand that low-hanging fruit is okay, not as obvious as it sounds. But our responsibility, our role as a manufacturer is to make technology more affordable. I mean... I'm not only talking cost-wise, I'm also talking in terms of efficiency and requirements for uh, maintenance and ease of use. And, you know, that's what we do becomes a no-brainer and part of the habit. So, of course, it's a big commercial win for us because, you know, we have a great product and we, we generate great business. But for the water utilities, it's also, you know, one less thing they have to Take care about, you know, remember, okay, we have, they have to know about their system. They have to keep track of what is happening. They have to repair leaks. They have to detect leak. They have to check, okay, why is this pipe corroded? So if you can take one headache from them, it's fantastic. And then they can focus their limited time and budget on other things. And I think when you introduce a new technology, if you bring that no-brainer situation, no-headache situation, you have a big advantage. Because you're actually giving them time to work on other very important aspects of their operation and business. And time is always limited within water utilities.
0: Well, I could follow on on all of those topics, but I have to be cautious of, of your time as well. So I propose you to close our deep dive and to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions.
1: It's time for the rapid fire questions.
0: So in that last section, I try to keep the question short and you have to try to keep the answers short. Don't worry, I'm the one to sidetrack all the time. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why?
2: Yeah, I, I would like to say it's the project I'm working on right now with GF Piping System, but it's a bit too early for that. Yeah, the most impactful project I worked on, on me, on myself, was the uh, constancy of supply for the city of Algiers in, in Algeria. Just because it was this combination of huge engineering work, construction works, teamwork, learning experience when you can contribute as much as you learn is just a fantastic and exciting experiment. What is the favorite part of your current job? Um, I think the customer interactions is 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 the best. I mean, that's the the fun part. The lot of problems coming up, but it's it's really the the, the fun part. Exchange of experience, and I know where most of them are coming from, but. Uh, you know, this exchange is is always uh, fun and rewarding,
0: challenging, difficult, you know, but,
2: yeah, rewarding.
0: What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry?
2: Well, um, I still think, uh, you know, I've been thinking that for the past 15 years, maybe. But digital twins, um, you know, we can talk about water networks, but, you know, real intelligence of digital twin and proper modeling of water systems, whether they're treatment, uh, this supply, sewage there, it's huge, hugely powerful and completely unused most of the time.
0: It's very interesting because I was reading a, a GWI paper this morning which was listing the top 10... Water applications or water technologies of the decade and the flop 10 water technologies of the decade. And they had this digital twin floating in between because it's not yet adopted to the level you could say it's really one of the top 10 applications. So it's somehow characterized as a flop as it's no, not yet adopted. And on the other hand, it could be so disruptive. I mean, apply a digital twin to your uh, network, which is now perfectly balanced with pressure regulation, and now you can play a lot with uh, the the pressure and and find out much more new things. I'm not trying to reopen the deep dive, but it sounds to me like something which is, I mean, we'll see in the next decade how how big it becomes. I was in a couple of conferences uh, this year,
2: and I've seen you know research institutes in northern in in northern Europe doing some great stuff around you know what they can do with digital twins and modeling a water system is. I was quite impressed, and i I thought I had a good knowledge over those things, and I'm, I was really
1: I
0: think I could see something is happening. What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project, and what is the one you care the least? Um,
2: maybe because I'm I'm getting older, I think to be surrounded uh, and be uh, by motivated people, driven people, is really a key key parameter, and if being. You know, at least uh, a positive influence on this. I wouldn't say the key driver because you know we always end up in different situations and positions. And you know my my goal is not to be the big influence. My goal is to be surrounded and contribute to be a, a positive influence on a project. So you know the people you work with, you only know, you become picky. And if you can have a uh, your word on this and you know influence that, that's very important for the fun part of things. I would say, and the least important. Yeah, I mean, maybe the management position is probably the less important things for me today. You know, recognition of a management level of a seniority level is absolutely
0: irrelevant for me today. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends?
2: Yeah, I know about this guy. He's doing this excellent podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: you said well, you didn't care about money, but you're still going to get no, my no. my check for that. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, <laughs> but
2: I mean. Uh, this is an excellent source of information because it's direct source of, in, of interaction with professionals, and I think it's quite good. And you give people the opportunity to deep dive on on topics, so I think it's all right.
0: Apart from that, I would strongly recommend to avoid uh, LinkedIn because <laughs> it's interesting. Everybody tells me uh, LinkedIn as a, as a recommendation, and you recommend to avoid it. Yeah, I mean. You don't get the full pictures. I mean, it's.
2: I try to interact sometimes on LinkedIn and and trying to give a chance to people who publish something to okay, you mentioned this and that in five lines in in LinkedIn, but I mean, yes, you use the buzzword hydrogen. Yes, you use the buzzword what but, you know, there's probably something very interesting behind that. But you know, we didn't quite get it. So I'm um, I'm always trying to give a chance. I mean, to good people to to and most of them do. But uh, you know by the time you achieve the the answer to your question that post is long gone and you know nobody's going to look at it so you know it's really fast and uh, and and really all you all you pass on is is buzzwords and things so yes it's good for networking and things like that but to know more about water i mean interact with people you know what what you're doing is excellent on a personal level um you know, if you if you are interested in the technology, if you are interested in a startup, a venture, a topic, LinkedIn is great to contact people and, and to engage with them. But that's just a, you know like a phone book if you if you want. So, so yeah.
0: you use it as a source, and then you take the discussion off platform and you discuss actively with people. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the best advice to, uh, to give. You would be surprised. I had people on that microphone recommending Twitter, which is even like one million times faster than LinkedIn. Okay. It was one guy, Adam Tank recommended Twitter, but still, <laughs> I think pace is, uh,
2: yeah, probably with time. I mean, you will tell me because you, you, you will have that experience with time. You get sufficient exposure and better response from people. If you are a known influencer and, and, and things like that.
0: But I, I see what you mean. In terms of, of course, you you have just so much space and so much time, so it can stay quite superficial, and it's quite hard sometimes to go really in depth of the, of a topic. But yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, some t- I I know I I sound like a dinosaur when I say that, <laughs> but uh, no, you can use digital tools to better interact with people. You know, but it could be anything from WhatsApp, emails are not really. Uh, great but uh, instagram whatsapp you know whatever helps you share media content uh, in a fast way and you 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 know whatever it doesn't matter it's a smile you interact with people you get feedback and if you connect especially in covid times you know if you have this ability to connect to people and keep exchange going you continue to you know even if you don't build your professional experience you build your network and you you create opportunities for for tomorrow and you can connect to people for for tomorrow so I think they um as long as it's linked to people and interaction with people any tool is good.
0: And to uh to close on that keep exchange going would you have someone to recommend me to come on that very microphone?
2: I don't know. I mean there are great people I've worked with um some most of them are retired now. <laughs> Really inspiring people. Well, I think if you if you could have Diane Daras on your microphone, uh, who was uh, a, a you know key management person within uh, Suez and also uh, chairman of IWA, that would be that would be great. I mean, she she probably has so much to to tell about the water industry in general. She's
0: on my bucket list. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's a very inspiring person. Well, thanks a lot for the advice. Thanks a lot for. That very thoughtful discussion. I really enjoyed that. See you soon and probably with the, the new developments and I promise you I'm not going to send some buzzwords at you like low-hanging fruit. <laughs> uh, I started something which was really interesting after that but I didn't want to insult anyone. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. I don't think you did. Thanks. It was a, was a pleasure. Also.
1: Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time!